Hello and welcome back to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. I'm so excited to have you all back here and to be back on the podcast um, with some more exciting artist interviews for our upcoming winter auction in November. It's been such a hot, um, strange summer, hasn't it? Um, If you're listening to this as the podcast is coming out, um, then I hope that during the previous heatwave you were able to find yourself a fridge to sit in or at the very least a fan. Um, I heard of people going to bed in wet t-shirts and all sorts. Um, And if you're listening to this in the future, um, welcome to the strange, welcome back to the strangest summer of all time. Um, (laughs) um, And yes, it's, it's been very hot. It has been for the most part a good summer for us though um so far at art on a postcard we were so overwhelmed and um grateful really to be in the position to have been able to raise 47,000 pounds for the Hepsi trust in our last auction i have to say we were getting slightly concerned in the build up just because everything's so uncertain at the moment and charities were taking such a massive hit due to the coronavirus and people's finances not being secure um but we worked bloody hard. We got some great press um, and most importantly, some fantastic artwork from some of the best contemporary artists. So we were still able to deliver for the Hepatitis C Trust and bring home some funds to support their ongoing work to eliminate Hep C in the UK by 2025. So with that being said and done, we thought we'd start up again for the winter auction by catching up with Samantha May who is the Helpline Information and Support Service Manager at the Hep C Trust, about her work. Um, Sam provides support, um, has been providing support for the last 16 years to people across the UK who require information and advice and emotional support regarding hepatitis C. Our main topic of discussion uh, in the podcast is to do with the ongoing infected blood inquiry. Now, this is in an inquiry that is the biggest ever here in the UK, bigger than the Hillsborough inquiry. Um, and Sam will be giving a witness statement. Um, and as someone who has been supporting thousands of people who've contracted a hepatitis C through infected blood in NHS medical blood pools, um, Sam's passion for this cause is infectious. And I hope for want of a better word and I hope it will shine light on why the work we do here is so important um remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on follow us on instagram at art on a postcard and all information on the inquiry and the hepsi trust contact details can be found at hepsitrust.org.uk Okay, Rosa, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm really well, thank you, Sam. How are you doing? Oh, well, all right. You know, I've been, it was a bit difficult at first, and then I kind of got my head around everything, and it was like, oh, actually, this is quite good, and, yeah. you know, novel, and, you know, interesting, and all of that. But but now I'm just sort of a bit, I'm fine. I don't, you know, don't want you to worry about me, but I'm a bit cheesed off with the whole bloody thing, really. It's quite depressing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, you know um, I guess it's just accepting that it's going to take a lot longer, isn't it? And uh, 
you know, adapting to it all. Um, yeah. But, you know, day to day, I'm fine. It's just weird um, to have our lives kind of curtailed with all of this. Yeah, definitely. Um, has it affected how, have you been going into the office or were you working from home for a while? Uh, yeah, I've been working at home since March and um, literally just the last few weeks, I've been coming into the office one day a week and that's felt really good. You know, I'm, I'm walking in, not that I'm super freaked out about catching it, but I just prefer to stay off public transport at the moment. And it's, I suppose it's a chance to do a bit of exercise as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, obviously there's not many people in the office, but it's, you know, it's nice to see a few people. And I mean, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> you know, all the things you wish for normally, you have to be careful what you wish for. Absolutely, um, yeah. But I, yeah, I really miss my colleagues. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> and you were doing uh, dance classes and things, weren't you? I know, Rosa, yes. I'm absolutely don't I mean honestly I could actually summon up I could break down sobbing if I thought about it too much um that was so important to me I just can't tell you what a big part of my um managing my stress and just you know um doing something positive for myself you know and I had it really kind of embedded in my life and of course it all had to stop because they couldn't run the classes anymore so um, you know I've been doing it online but you know it's not the same in a flat you know online uh, nobody around you you know it's not as much fun so it's much harder to motivate yourself so I'm I'm still sort of doing it but not really and yeah. feeling quite you know and, and it's you know it's anyway the company's folded now you know they, they've had to close their studio and it was just such a happy wonderful lovely positive place yeah yeah um but just um, kept in touch with a younger thing you know i just felt like i was 16 rather than 58 and um, um it was something about dancing that was just really good fun and you know i just felt like i was in a giant girl band <laughs> <laughs> and that's how i kind of you know approached it really probably yeah. a bit too enthusiastically if, if the truth <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, oh, yeah, I mean it's just quite incredible how these things of just things that you think would go on forever um you know have, have just stopped and closed down how difficult it is for people to keep them going at the same time it's inspirational how many people have been able to adapt with what they do and I mean even our work here you know how we've been able to adapt and keep the Hepsi Trust going somehow it's you know no mean feed so it's it's not all doom and gloom but yeah definitely it was great to chat to rachel um mm -hmm. for the podcast recently um mm -hmm. and just get a kind of insight into what you've all been doing and how you've all adapted um mm -hmm. it sounds incredible really um and we're really excited I, i'm so excited to get a chance to speak to you today because one thing that's really good um for us is that each auction now focusing on a different sort of um uh kind of faculty of the of the Hepsi Trust and the different kinds of work that we do each time to sort mm. of highlight um the the far kind of huge scope that we um mm. that we have in the charity um so um would you mind Sam introducing yourself um and sort of the work that given a general idea of the sort of work that you do day in day out at the trust of course. Um, 
Okay, well, so I'm Samantha May. I'm the Helpline Information and Support Service Manager at the Hep C Trust. Uh, we're the national charity, national UK charity for people with Hep C. And I came along here in the summer of 2004, shortly after my own diagnosis with Hep C. And at that time, the Hep C Trust was very much a new charity. Uh, there was just a couple of people working here. Our old boss, uh, Charles Gore, who launched the charity um, and he had set up a website as a source of sort of reliable patient friendly information for people to access um, back at that time and I mean still today to be honest there's very limited resources for people with hep C um, so it was fantastic for, for me as a, a patient out there to be able to, to find it even in its infancy really and uh, Charles was enormously support, supportive to me about my own diagnosis and um, I was great, very grateful for that and um, one of the things he wanted to do was to launch a helpline. Um, so after my uh, treatment had ended, my own treatment for Hep C, uh, I joined the trust then, so that was July 2004. Back then, um, it was a very different landscape for people with Hep C. Um, there was a treatment available, um, interferon and ribavirin, but it was very limited in, in terms of its success rates. It was about a 50-50 success rate for people overall, so not great odds. Um, it was a very punishing treatment, <clears throat> lots of side effects, very akin to chemotherapy. So a lot of people chose not to do it for that reason, or they did do it and then found it didn't work. Um, it was also a very long treatment, minimum six months, and for some people up to 18 months. So, you know, um, if you had a diagnosis of hep C back at that time, um, your only option to get rid of it <clears throat> was a six to 18 month treatment that gave you a 50-50 chance overall. Um, and for most people who did it, they went through a very, very punishing time with side effects, some of which um, wouldn't resolve after the treatment ended. So you might be lucky and get rid of your hep C, but you would then be left with a, another series of problems to deal with that might affect your uh, quality of life. So it was a, a much bleaker landscape for people. There was a lot of stigma around. Um, there was a lack of information and understanding from medical professionals. I think it is a lot better nowadays, happily, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. So the helpline um, really <clears throat> provided a, a place for people to come and speak in confidence to somebody else that had the condition, not a doctor, not a nurse, not a, a GP who had maybe the, the sort of barest grasp of, of uh, you know, details about the illness, but somebody who really knew what it was like to be diagnosed, have to live with this illness, the changes you have to make to your lifestyle to live with it, uh, the complications of treatment and you know uh, for some even if uh, as I say the treatment might work for you if, if it did that was great but you were still left with ongoing problems and if it didn't work for you at that time there was nowhere else to go apart from begin a very long wait for new treatments. Yeah. Um, so you know I mean on top of that the, the trust could help in very practical ways with people um, you know, whether it was housing or benefits and, and things like that, dietary advice, lifestyle guidance, um, signposting to other organisations for help with other conditions or, or other problems that people had. 
practical problems, people getting stigmatized by their employer, perhaps because they've revealed their diagnosis of hep C and then they'd find themselves sacked uh, or put on to other duties. Um, you know, they were refused access to treatment at dentists, for example, because of um, confusion about how the virus is spread. Um, so there was a lot of issues that we could help with at that time. And um, we, the whole model of the helpline really was to get other people involved, other patients involved on a voluntary basis, each of us having caught hep C in different ways. Uh, as, as you'll be aware, there's many different ways that people um, can catch hep C, but certainly injecting drug use would be a big one, uh, followed by blood transfusions on the NHS many years ago. Um, yes, um, I am looking forward to getting your ideas around the infected blood inquiry later on um, in the podcast. Um, because yes, as you say, I know that that's something that has massively affected um, so many people's lives. And you are a point of call for loads of those people, which must be tough at times. I mean, well, yes, absolutely, Rosa, but I mean, tough, but, um, you know, I feel it's a cause I feel very passionate about and uh, so very happy to be in a situation where we can support people. And I suppose that was just to sort of, you know, when the helpline started, um, as I say, the, the, the whole sort of tone of having hep C was a very difficult one for people. It is more open nowadays. We do have now uh, new treatments in place which have um, uh, you know a shorter in duration eight to 12 weeks instead of six to uh, 18 months success rate over 97 percent instead of 50 50 um, yeah. you know very few side effects maybe you feel a little bit tired or, or whatever wow. so the the situation's much more positive but in the early days just to sort of explain how the helplines changed over the years we mm -hmm. were very much focused on emotional support in the early days, chivying people along um, to get through this awful older treatment um, mm. and, and supporting them beyond that. And as I say, involving um, people as volunteers, a lot of people who have been very marginalized or stigmatized as a result of their own diagnosis, giving them the skills, you know, whether it's sort of basic office skills or communication skills, learning how to use databases and things to equip them uh, to go back into the workplace, you know, when their hep C ho hopefully had been cured. Mm. Um, as time's gone on, um, you know, we are now over the last couple of years much more focused on, um, you know, we're still here for everybody with hep C, but our typical caller would be those that have caught their hep C through blood or blood products, um, you know, many years ago when blood wasn't screened on the NHS. So the, the nature of the service, uh, we still do all the old things we used to, but now with much more focus on that particular group of people. Right, yeah, yeah. So your job, obviously, primarily on the helplines. Um, what is a typical day like for you? And what are the usual kind of calls that you're getting now? Um, is, is there, are there any kind of examples of a problem someone might have, for instance? Oh, I mean, gosh, where to start with that one, Rosa? I mean, um, <laughs> what's, what's fascinating and uh, one, one of the many um, very rewarding things that's actually kept me in this role for so long is uh, that there is no typical day. 
Um, obviously, you, you literally don't know what you're going to get when you, when you answer the phone. It might be a, you know something very straightforward, like a, a request for for leaflets from a service somewhere. You know, very humdrum. Uh, it may be somebody who's just been diagnosed and you know has, if they're lucky, been passed our number by their GP. But unfortunately, more often found our uh, found our number you know off their own bat on on the internet or whatever. And people will be very confused and distressed at that point. You know, they, they're unlikely to be given much information, even nowadays, at the point of their diagnosis. So um, as a result of the confusion of hep C with other viruses, you know, people are unsure how it's passed on. So often their immediate worry is, oh, my goodness, have I passed this on to you know, my partner, my children, my friends, my family? Uh, what does that mean? Um, there's often um, a lot of confusion on how they've got it. Um, very often they'll naturally uh, think it's something that they must have caught quite recently. Um, but actually what we find when we talk to them, for the majority of people, um, it's actually an illness that they've probably been living with for many decades. And that takes quite a bit to get your head round the fact that you can have been living with an, uh, an illness as serious as this. You know, I mean, certainly just to use my own case as an example, I probably caught mine when I was about 17, 18. I didn't find out till I was 40. Uh, you know, um, you know, I did treatment at 41. I'm now 58. It was a very long journey. And I mean, I was mortified to, to think I'd had that illness for more than half my life without knowing. Um, oh, yeah. And this is because it, it passes under the radar because of this general lack of awareness of how it's transmitted. Um, you know, um, amongst doctors, there's a presumption that it's only injecting drug use. So therefore, if you're not an injecting drug user, uh, why would a GP want to test you? Um, you know, some people may well have experimented with drugs, say, 30 years ago. It may, it may have been something they did as a, a one-off, uh, you know, experiment with friends that they never went back to again. But that one incident has led to them catching this virus and uh, you know, living with it perhaps for many, many years. And the other large group, obviously, the people who caught it through uh, blood and blood products, um, maybe somebody that had a car accident in 1975 um, and required a blood transfusion. So a typical caller to our, our helpline at the moment would be somebody over the age of 50. Um, our oldest caller so far has been 87. Um, who's recently diagnosed, um, very confused as to how they've got it. But after talking to us, we're often able to establish that, in fact, it related to a blood transfusion at some point before 1991. Um, one, lar one large group of people we hear from, for example, um, and certainly uh, one of our previous patrons, um, Damonita Roddick, uh, caught it in this way. A lot of women need blood in the course of childbirth for various complications there. That was the source of her infection. Um, so we often hear from women in their 50s, 60s and 70s, as I say, that had blood many years ago when they were having children, but are only getting diagnosed now. Obviously, there's accidents that people have, operations where blood is needed, and some people have specific medical conditions like haemophilia, uh, sickle cell thalassemia uh, where they might have needed blood products also um, and that would have been a risk for them as well. Yeah so one of the main focuses of our winter auction is on the hep C trust involvement in the infected blood 
inquiry, as mm. I mentioned, um, which I think this is what the um, blood transfusions are kind of um, tied up in with this inquiry. Mm. Um, I was reading that this is the biggest inquiry ever held in Britain. Um, could you please give a bit of context as to what it's about and what role the Hep C Trust have in it? Absolutely. So yes, you're right, Rosa. It's the largest public inquiry that's ever been held um, in this country before, larger in scale than Hillsborough. Um, so in the 1970s, it was apparent that people were developing inflammation of the liver, which is hepatitis. That's what hepatitis means um, right. after receiving blood. And this condition initially was known as transfusion hepatitis. Um, but it was thought that there was a virus involved and they were aware of hepatitis A and they were aware of hepatitis B. Um, but in fact, it was neither of those things. So it was referred to for a while as non-A, non-B hepatitis. Um, as I say, further research needed to be done into that. And it wasn't until 1989 that they were able to actually pin it down in the lab and it got given the name Hep C. Um, it then took them another couple of years uh, until 1991 to design a test that was reliable enough um, to screen uh, the national blood supply to make sure that the blood that we receive when we have accidents, operations or, or whatever is safe. Um, so any blood given before September 1991 potentially had hep C virus in it. And uh, as hep C is a bloodborne virus for, for transmission to occur, infected blood has to get into your bloodstream. You don't get it by looking at it, touching it, uh, you know, being in the same room as it. It needs to get into your bloodstream. And obviously a blood transfusion is a very direct way uh, to do that. Um, there was a group, however, of people um, who have haemophilia um, and they require pretty much you know constant um, treatment with blood products um, for management of their condition because they suffer with bleeds as a result of their haemophilia. Um, some people have a very severe form of the illness, some people not so much, um, but regularly they will require having these products. And it became apparent that um, pretty much all of them, around 5,000 as a, as a rough uh, guess, uh, were infected with about with hepatitis C and about a quarter of them also unfortunately received HIV which sort of came a little while ahead of hep C in the early 80s. Um, this blood was brought in um, from abroad, from uh, the, the, uh, certainly from America, from a very high risk population, um, you know, prisons and drug users specifically. And the blood was pooled, so if even one person who donated uh, the blood that was made into these blood products had uh, hepatitis C, that would infect the whole batch of blood products Absolutely. that came from that. And then that was administered not to just one single person, but um, you know, many, many, many people. So hence why so many people got infected. Um, do you have any idea on the kind of scale, like what kind of numbers we might be talking about? Well, in, I mean, worldwide, I don't. Um, certainly in the UK, we're looking at about 5,000 uh, haemophiliacs at that time were infected in this way. Wow. Um, and 
so they really had a double whammy, not only with HIV, but also with hepatitis C. And if they were, you know, as I say, they were having these products repeatedly. So if they were lucky one time and, and got a safe, uh, you know, one that hadn't got hepatitis C in it, the next time they had blood products, they'd probably catch it then. And hence that why that community was so badly affected by this. Um, as time went on, I mean, obviously other people have blood for other reasons in the course of operations. We hear from lots of women um, who have had blood for childbirth. There's other medical conditions where people need blood and blood products, um, specifically sickle cell and thalassemia. Um, so many, many people were affected by this. And because they couldn't screen blood until 1991, um, you know, risk times for getting this illness were throughout the 70s and 80s, right into the early 90s. Um, the, as the haemophilia community was so badly affected by this, they very early mobilised themselves and became a very strong campaigning force um, for compensation um, from the government and also to understand why had they been given this very risky product when there were alternatives available. Um, you know, and uh, one of the many things that the inquiry will be looking at is examining what decisions were made at that time, what could have been done better. Certainly everybody's priority is that it never, you know, a similar thing never happens again. Um, so there's many issues that the inquiry are, are covering and, and for people who had haemophilia, this will be one of them. As time went on, um, you know, uh, it was thought that because people who had blood transfusions, the chances of them, in theory, getting infected blood was much less because uh, if I go along and don't donate blood, that is not pooled with somebody else's blood. So if I go and, uh, I don't know if it works quite like this, but if I donate a pint of blood, that pint of blood will go to one specific person. It won't go to many, many people, which is the problem that the haemophiliacs had of you know, the blood products they were receiving uh, came from many uh, hundreds of people. Uh, so the chances of them getting it were much higher than those who were just receiving it for a transfusion. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this group of people, uh, they, they thought it was much less likely. There was, there was a sort of what they call a look back exercise in the early 90s. Um, where they tried to locate people who had had blood transfusions across the UK um, to inform them that, you know, uh, we're very sorry, but please can you come in and have a test because there is a possibility you might have hep C. Um, certainly some people were contacted and were alerted and, and did come forward for testing. Um, and, you know, were able to access this, uh, as I say, said earlier, this um, rather difficult treatment that was initially available to help people with hep C. But at least those people were made aware uh, of their condition. So they had the option to make lifestyle changes to limit the progression. They had the option to do this uh, treatment that was available. Um, they had the option to, you know, perhaps take extra caution uh, around the house to limit the possibility of passing it on to other people. I mean, I would like to make it very clear that actually it's very difficult to, to catch hep C in any kind of a day-to-day -day contact or sexual contact. It's, it's very, very unusual and very difficult. It's typically injecting drug use and sharing equipment or people who have received infected blood or blood products. 
Um, but obviously when you have an illness like this, you want to do all you can to protect others and, and limit the possible uh, you know, passing on of it. Um, if you don't know you've had it, you can't do that. You don't have that option. Um, yeah. So they, they made, a, a, as I say, a sort of rather half-hearted attempt to locate people. Um, but time went on and, and the nature of hep C, unfortunately, is it's an illness that when you get it quite often, you have no idea that you've caught it. Most of us, when we get ill, uh, we know we're ill. We've got a fever. We've got a rash. We've, we've, we've got aches and pains. Uh, you know, there's something happening and that prompts us to go to the doctor and, you know, hopefully we get a diagnosis and we get a treatment or an operation or a procedure that helps us with that. Unfortunately, with hep C, um, most often people won't have any symptoms. So, you know, they could have had a transfusion um, and then spent the next 30 years, you know, pretty much feeling okay. They might have problems and, and quite likely to have problems like fatigue or digestive problems or, you know, getting a bit muddled sometimes. But, you know, hey, we all feel like that sometimes. So even if you get to the doctor and you say, I feel tired all the time, the doctor isn't going to think, oh, I must test you for hep C then. They'll be looking at a whole range of other much more likely causes for your fatigue. And hence it goes under the radar and is not diagnosed. And it's not until people have had it 20, 30 or more years that the more serious complications of hep C start to come into play. And that's, as I say, very typical of the group that we're hearing from now on our helpline are people that had blood transfusions before September 1991. They've been living with this illness for decades. Some of them, um, you know, may have been children. Um, may, you know, we've had a, a guy who was a small child who had a very bad leg, leg break, for example. Um, and he required a transfusion and it wasn't until he was in his 50s that he got diagnosed with hep C. Um, as I say, another, another person might be a woman who's, who's had child, given birth to a child and needed blood. Uh, you know, there's lots of different reasons people have it, but it's okay. under the radar and they're only getting diagnosed now. And unfortunately, for a large percentage of this group, Aside from the, the shock of, of receiving a hepatitis C diagnosis, when they get referred to a specialist for more, uh, you know, follow-up uh, care, monitoring, and now this new treatment, um, they're finding that because of having that illness for so many decades, they've developed cirrhosis, which puts them at an increased risk of liver cancer. They're also much more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid problems, and, you know, a whole range of, of other possible sort of complications as a result of that long-term infection. Right. And so at, at the current point right now, um, what, it, what kind of um, stage is the inquiry at at the moment? And what is the aim of the inquiry? You know, is it compensation for those people who um, received transfusions that were with infected blood? Is it um, just an acknowledgement? What, what would be the sort of um, uh, end goal of if the, if the inquiry is um, successful for those people who were, um, who were affected by uh, infected blood. Right. So, so the inquiry sort of officially launched with their pre preliminary hearings in September 2018. Um, it's been progressing since then, even though obviously over these last months with the lockdown, 
uh, as has everybody, uh, you know, had to adapt. They've still been working away. Unfortunately, that did delay some of the hearings they were supposed to have earlier this year. Um, but so they've been going since September 2018. The next hearings are scheduled for this September. Um, it's hard to uh, encapsulate sort of quickly uh, the range of issues that the inquiry will be looking at. But one of the things they want to do is to examine, you know, why were people given this infected blood and blood products and what more should have been done about that to, to limit that or protect people against that? Um, why were people uh, given so little support and information around their diagnosis and subsequently um, if they had caught it in this way? Um, what was known about the risks of infection, um, you know, back at that time? It's very sort of murky. They were clearly, you know, as I said earlier, aware of something called transfusion hepatitis dash A non B. Um, and we appreciate it's, you know, it's difficult that if they hadn't pinned it down in the laboratory, they couldn't have a specific test for it. But they were aware that there was something wrong with those products and with that blood. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things, I mean, many, many uh, things that uh, they're covering, they want to assess the scale of it. With the haemophiliac community, it's fairly easy to establish that because only a certain amount of people in the country have uh, haemophilia and by nature of their illness they're regularly receiving uh, blood products and so they were identified um, in the main very quickly because they're in constant contact with their uh, haemophilia centres and, and hospitals managing that condition so they were identified very early in the, in the 90s um, and at least were aware of their condition um, and you know the treatment option for it at the time. Um, what we don't know the scale of, though, is how many people um, received infected blood in blood transfusions. What I do know on the helpline here, and bear in mind I've been here, you know, 16 years now, um, we have consistently heard from people over the years just getting diagnosed, uh, no other possible routes of transmission other than blood transfusions many years ago. Um, the figures uh, around those that have already been diagnosed, there isn't sort of a, a, a figure I can give you of how many people in this country received blood transfusions. You would think that that information would be quite easy to get hold of, but it's not. There's many people, unfortunately, uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking, have died already, um, perhaps with hepatitis C, but they've died of other conditions. Uh, their number is not being counted. Um, there's many people who never received a, a diagnosis of, of hep C. Um, the inquiry believes there could be anything from a few thousand people out there to perhaps tens of thousands of people out there across the UK um, right now that have not been diagnosed who received infected blood transfusions. Um, you know, I mean, even if it's a few thousand, that's way too many people and we need to find those people and get them tested because now they can be treated um, with these nice new treatments that are available and the sooner they're identified the less likely the chances of them progressing to more serious illness like cirrhosis there is no cure for cirrhosis um, there's very limited uh, options for people who have liver cancer um, <clears throat> you know it can result in liver transplant for some um, but you really don't want to get to that stage if you possibly can. 
So really getting the message out there to people. If you had a blood transfusion before September 1991, please go and get tested. Um, don't assume that it's been done. It's not a test that's routinely offered to you. Um, often people say to me on the phone, oh, but my doctor's been doing blood tests for years. You know, they would have picked it up before if, if I'd had that. No, they wouldn't have done because they might have been testing you for all sorts of things, but they won't have been looking for hep C. Uh, you know, it really does pass under the radar for some of the, the reasons I've, I've, I've given you already. Um, the only way to know if you've got this illness um, is to get tested because you may feel very well. I felt very well for 25 years having this illness. I had no idea I had it. Um, some people might be badly affected and they've been misdiagnosed. We have uh, a lot of people who call us, um, you know, and in the course of the call, I'll say to them, you know, have you got any other medical conditions? And they'll say something like, oh, yes, I, I was told five years ago I've got ME. I was told 10 years ago I've got fibromyalgia. Um, I'm, I'm not saying they haven't got those conditions, but what we know about those conditions is they mirror a lot of the symptoms of hepatitis C and there may have been a misdiagnosis there. Um, you know, so it, it's complicated, Rosa, it's complicated, but these people need to be identified. So uh, the inquiry is very much focused on trying to assess what that scale is, what extent and right. how these people can be reached. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you said, given that, um, you know, they were harvesting blood from uh, high risk people in prisons and places like that, as you say, mm -hmm. um, and knowing that there was a virus or at least something that works similarly to a virus that affected mm -hmm. the liver and yet still went ahead with the with the transfusions and harvesting them, harvesting the blood in such um, in this type of way and pooling it together, as you say, I guess is a thinking that the NHS could have done something to intervene to ensure the blood wasn't infected. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, another big area, and as I say, it's huge. <laughs> you know, this isn't the biggest uh, public inquiry in the UK for no reason. Another area they're going to look at is the impact that this had on people. Obviously, there's a, a horrible impact in being diagnosed with anything. Um, and especially to find out that you've been um, you know, essentially given it by the people that are providing care for you. Um, but it's not just the uh, health impact of uh, getting an illness like hepatitis C, uh, the mental and psychosocial impact of it is huge. And especially uh, back in those times, I mean, I don't know if you'll remember, but, um, you know, you've probably heard of the campaign around HIV and AIDS in the early 80s when that was first discovered. And there was a, a very big television campaign, Don't Die of Ignorance, uh, with a gravestone sort of toppling down. Um, you know, there was a lot of stigma uh, generated around these bloodborne viruses in those early days. And that impact on people getting a diagnosis of, of hep C was essentially the same. I mean, families had to leave town and move elsewhere. Um, really? Families would find that, you know, suddenly their kids weren't welcome at, you know, little Joey's house down the road anymore. Um, people had, you know, appalling, appalling abuse uh, from people in their area as I said earlier I think with you know things like dentists and and doctors or uh, you know may refuse to treat you um, if they knew you had this illness so there was a psychological impact 
additionally yeah. on the person who got the diagnosis and an, the knock-on effect of that on on their families so that's very much being examined as well yeah um, yeah I mean for you on the helpline with those misconceptions mm-hmm. do you often I mean I know of obviously um the majority of the time um it, it may be people who who have lived with hep c as you say and things like that do you ever get calls from people who have completely got the wrong end of the stick of hep c just because of the um sort of misinformation that's out there um and then you find yourself having to sort of um educate people i guess as to what actually oh. hep c entails Absolutely, Rosa. That's a big part of the work that we do, and it, uh, you know, it always has been. Um, and that's rather depressing in a way um, that all these years later. I mean, as I, I keep saying, it, it has got so much better for people now. It, there's no doubt it's better than it used to be. But there still is this huge lack of awareness in the general public. Most people, you know, talking about the general public. Um, if they know anything about hep C, they'll probably sort of think of, you know, in an essence, sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Uh, they will associate it with those uh, things. Um, you know, it gets a lot of confusion with hepatitis B, for example, is a similar virus in lots of ways. Um, also a devastating virus for many people. You can be vaccinated for it, um, but that is passed sexually. Um, and so people sort of naturally kind of assume, I think, um, and, you know, that hep C can also be passed on sexually. So there's a stigma there. The fact that drug use, I mean, there's no question, injecting drug use, um, whether you do it once or a thousand times, is an extremely high risk activity for getting hepatitis C if you're sharing uh, the equipment for it. There's no doubt about that. But that does not mean that everybody caught it in that way. Um, but so there's this sort of association with people that it's something to do with that. We get a, a lot of calls from anxious people who, you know, have been out and about in public places and, and think they might have come into contact with, with hep C. They might have touched something that might have had blood on it, you know, sort of public places. And they're very worried that they might have caught it. So we do a lot of reassurance to very anxious people. We do we spend a lot of time explaining the differences between how these different viruses are transmitted. Um, the trouble is, I think, if people sort of even go on online and start looking for information, it's very confusing there. I mean, even if you go on uh, a lot of, uh, I won't name names, but reputable uh, websites in, in, in the UK, you'll see reference to the possibility of uh, sexual transmission of hepatitis C. And just to be clear on that, there is a a risk of that, particularly for uh, gay men who are also co-infected with HIV. There is an increased risk of getting hep C. For heterosexual couples, it's extremely unlikely. I think I've only heard of one possible case of transmission in my whole time here. And um, I mean, we've taken over 50,000 calls over the years. So um, you know, put some perspective on how unlikely that is. Um, so we're constantly providing that reassurance to the general public about how it's transmitted, how it's different to other viruses like Hep B or HIV. But I have to say, we, we are also spending an awful lot of our time having to educate professionals. Um, and I mean, I, I don't, it's difficult to <laughs> articulate, but you know, we do hear from GPs and nurses ringing us for information about it. Yeah. And 
whereas I could sort of understand that many, many years ago when I started, I, I still find that very frustrating now. And, and we hear from people, uh, you know, even sort of going back, to, uh, you know, I think even at the beginning of this year, um, even though the inquiry is going on and has been going on for the best part of two years now, and one of their, as I said earlier, one of their things is to make people aware, if you've had a blood transfusion, go and get tested, go to your GP, get tested. Never mind how you feel, just have the test because that's the only way you'll know for sure. Um, but so we're hearing from people that have gone to their GPs, told, told their GPs, hey, I had a blood transfusion, you know, back in 1985 or, or, or whatever. And the GP is refusing to test them um, because they don't fit the profile of somebody with hep C. And that fit the profile means, you know, whatever this looks like, you don't look like an injecting drug user or you're not the type of person that would get hep C. Wow. So, you know, some people are quite gutsy and will challenge their doctor or they'll, they'll call an organisation like us for uh, clarification on whether that's right. But a lot of people will just, you know, obviously look up to their doctor and accept that and go off home and think, oh, well, I, I didn't need to be tested for that. Yeah. And unfortunately for them, if they miss that opportunity, um, a few more years might go by um, because they've had a long term with in infection with hep C that's been undiagnosed. They'll start to get really ill. It's probably at that stage they will be diagnosed because, you know, further investigation will be needed. And, you know, they'll find out that they're you know, potentially suffering liver failure or, or liver cancer or some of the other complications I've mentioned. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is, is, is the sort of like the cause of why there's this mass professional misinformation from people like doctors? Because it's strange to think that it would be some kind of personal, you know, vendetta against getting people treatment mm -hmm. for the virus. What what drives the, the kind of um, the misinformation and the ignorance around hepatitis C? Oh, good question, Rosa. And I mean, yes, there's uh, lots of things I could say about that. I, th I mean, and they're all quite difficult things to say. You can't help but feel that there is, um, because a large majority of people have caught hep C through injecting drug use, um, that there, you know, has been a sort of ongoing... Um, atmosphere of you know does that group really matter is that group really important they did it to themselves right. uh, you know uh, are they worthy of you know we, we hear from so many people now with the peer work we do across the country um, they're just so relieved to make contact with us and talk to somebody who's not being judgmental about their situation a lot of them have had very difficult challenging life experiences uh, there's lots of reasons people do drugs um, for some people it's a you know it's a flirtation and they they experiment and they move on for some it becomes a a really serious sort of uh you know addiction issue um you know but many of uh, the people that do take drugs have had very difficult life experiences which have led them to seek ways to reveal, re uh, relieve some of that stress through drug use um so you know, they don't feel worthy in themselves. There's a perception in that community, for example, that they, they won't have access to, to this new treatment, that they're not a priority for it. In fact, that is not the case now, I have to say. And, and certainly the Hepsi Trust is very active, as, as you know, out on the streets, out and about, 
um, you know, really strongly encouraging and motivating people, uh, supporting them to appointments to get them tested and get them on the treatment. And um, the relief is palpable. But I think this, you know, that sort of does affect the uh, sort of um, judgment of people. Again, as I say, doctors are more aware now. Uh, there are better services in place to support people with hep C, but this sort of negativity about how you might have caught it or the assumption right. that you must have caught it in that way, even if you didn't. Right. And, you know, flipping that around, you can imagine how that's very difficult for, uh, say, a 70-year-old woman who's just getting diagnosed now with something that she, you know, the doctor's telling her she's got hep C and he's, you know, maybe looking at her in a slightly different way, thinking that she must have used drugs years ago. Um, if she's got any knowledge of it herself from, you know, reading newspapers or, or, or you know, uh, over the years or seeing anything on television, not that there's much about it she will probably have that perception. So she will be feeling dirty and, uh, you know, all of these uh, dreadful uh, sort of things that come off a diagnosis. So it, that in itself prevents people from coming forward to be tested. And you can imagine how awful that is for people who caught it in other ways to uh, have that baggage attached to them. Um, I mean, at the Hep C Trust, we're here to support everybody with Hep C, however they got it. Uh, as you'll know, many of us here have had it. Um, and, you know, a large majority of, caught us, uh, of us have caught it in, in very different ways. Um, but these assumptions are made about it being a, a drug-using thing, and you can't help but feel that that's been a barrier. Right. The mystery around blood-borne viruses generally um, and the confusion with other ones, you know, they all sound like the same thing, hep A, hep B, hep C. You know, there's confusion even with HIV. And, and for those that were around in the 80s that remember the campaigns around AIDS and HIV, uh, you know, it was a very powerful campaign. It certainly drove lots of people to go and get tested for HIV, but it created a lot of fear and a lot of stigma, unfortunately, came out of that fear. And that sort of passed on, if you like to hepatitis C as well. Yeah, I mean, um, it's so great to know that the Hep C Trust is there as a kind of counter to all of that um, stigma that you're describing, a lot of the negative kind of, um, the, the negativity and the ignorance around hepatitis C. It's so great to know that the Hep C Trust is there for anyone who um, might require a service that, as you say, is non-judgmental, open-minded and um understanding of the, mm -hmm. the condition um you mentioned that a lot of people call up feeling very anxious and i know that obviously anxiety is kind of rife at the moment um mm. i know that you know f for yourself it must be a kind of um you must have days where you sort of being on the other end of that, the receiving end of so much anxiety and trauma over the phone must be so tiring. Um, and just to wrap up the podcast on a kind of positive note, I just wanted to ask how, how do you kind of manage it? How do you, what, what kind of advice would you have to anyone else who kind of might find themselves in quite anxious situations? If you, if you know, any of us, we get anxious for all sorts of reasons, not just hep C, like you, you know, you say with the background of COVID-19 right now, people's anxiety for all sorts of reasons is very high. It doesn't help if you're just sitting there bottling it up. It's much better to get uh, good information. Um, you know, 
we're able to, you know, often when we start a call with people, they'll be quite tearful. You can hear in their voice, you know, they're speaking very rapidly or very furtively. They're very afraid and, you know, as if they're whispering in a, a cupboard somewhere, you know, in case somebody else will hear uh, coming across this very timid. Yeah. Um, often by the end of the call, after talking to us, um, I can't say that we solve every single problem for people, but you can just sense the relief in people's voices. You know, their uh, tone uh, improves, they become more confident. Uh, you know, we might even have a few laughs by the end of the call because we can put things into perspective for people. I mean, there's, whether it's us with, with Hepsi or obviously many other organisations out there that can provide help to people, we can signpost people to additional resources. If it's something we can't help with directly, we're linked into loads of other organisations from our work here over the years on many different issues. Um, you know, we, so we want to make sure that people get all the support they need. It's, it's, it goes way beyond just hepatitis C with the work that we do here. Wow, um, that's so, brilliant. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I, I I always find it just such an inspiring place to work, and you know yourself included. You're just doing such um, amazing, inspiring work for so many people. Um, and um, am I right in in saying that you are going to give a witness statement um, for the upcoming uh, work in within the inquiry? Absolutely, Rosa. So obviously the inquiry team are hearing from, you know, the people that received blood and blood products. Uh, many uh, thousands of them have come forward to offer their testimony, uh, which the chair of the inquiry is uh, going through every single one. Obviously, there's lots of common themes that come out of that, but there's often some, uh, you know, unusual uh, stories that, that come forward from that. They've kind of, um, the first year or so of the inquiry was very much focused on hearing that individual witness testimony. Um, and they will be coming back to that because they've kept people at the front of the inquiry the whole way through uh, the people that were infected and affected. But of course, they'll be talking to a wide range of um, people from the NHS, from government, from other charities like ourselves, for example, the Haemophilia Society. Um, and we are uh, what they call core participants in the inquiry. So because of our uh, knowledge here and the fact that we've had this direct contact with so many thousands of people over many, many years, um, you know, obviously we've heard an awful lot in that time. And so uh, we're currently underway with um, providing a, a full detailed statement to the uh, inquiry chair um outlining all the issues that we've heard about all the concerns that people have raised with us over the years um, and we'll be making that available to them on a practical level uh you know we're very much encouraging people you know we're, we're hearing from people just getting diagnosed i mean i had a lady just yesterday just diagnosed you know definitely a blood transfusion many years ago she, yeah. had, she had no idea about the inquiry so i've made her aware of that I've made her aware of the payment scheme, uh, government payment scheme that she's able to access uh, for being infected in that way. So we're very directly supporting the people involved as much as we can to give their own evidence because the more evidence the inquiry hears, the better they're going to be able to put together all the pieces of what went wrong all those years ago, 
How can we make sure this never happens again? What can we do for the people that were infected and affected? How much better can the support be that all of us can give to that group of people, whether that's financial or you know, emotional and psychological support or, or practical help? Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic, Sam. Thank you so, so much for sharing um, all of that with me today. It's just um, so interesting and just such important work as well. So, um, yeah, I'm really grateful to have got the chance to speak with you about it today. No, well, likewise, Rosa, thank you so much. It's such an important issue. It's something I feel very strongly about. I mean, just to, you know, if we can end with the fact that you know, hepatitis C is a serious and very unpleasant, nasty illness, but it's now highly curable. And it's so important that um, people like yourself get this message out there to as many people as possible. A simple blood test, if you've got it, you can do a course of tablets, you can be rid of it in eight to 12 weeks. Um, you know, we're on track to eliminate hep C, as you know, uh, from your involvement with our work by 2025. In order to do that, we need to find these people out there that have been undiagnosed. We've got people on the streets working with that. Um, now our focus must be on this uh, group of people who have blood transfusions before 91. Absolutely. We will hopefully achieve that goal by 2025. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rosa. All right. Take care, Sam. You take care for now. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Love. Bye. Hello. Me again, just letting you know that the winter auction will run from the 5th to the 19th of November. As usual, we have some of the best artists creating some postcard size original artwork up for auction and we do it all for the Hepatitis C Trust to support their incredible work to eliminate Hepatitis C by 2025. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe. For any information on our work, head to artonapostcard.com and follow us on social media at Art on a Postcard.